This series is called Advent. Well, we'll do we know what Advent is? Um, well, it's the leading up to Christmas, isn't it? I mean, I don't think it's particularly biblical, but um, in, in that form. But we do it because it's become a tradition um, of the church to have this season, to have this period uh, where, along with other individuals, have um, brought us into this phenomenal thing that happens, not by chance, but it happens. And it's just such a world thing, and it's a gl- become a global thing. Even the Hindus up our road celebrate Christmas, and or they used to anyway. And, um, and other people and our Muslim friends, they, uh, they sort of celebrate Christmas as well and want to talk about Jesus, that's good. Um, but, it, you know, it's become the Christian thing to do. And, and though increasingly lots of people just don't want to celebrate Christmas or recognise it, they just want to do their own thing, be at home or go to work even. And I think there's plenty of opportunities for that to happen. In year after year, there's more shops opening on Christmas Day. And um, so, but as, as a church, we're just, we're just honouring this thing, you know, this time when we celebrate uh, the coming of Jesus for the first time. He's coming again. Did I see anybody smile? I didn't see many people smile. He's coming again. Well, it rather depends how you look at it theologically, doesn't it? I'm not going to go into that today. But he's coming again. And the coming of Jesus the first time endorses the fact that he's coming the second time. Amen. Amen. We don't talk a lot about it. But in actual fact, the fact that he came again, if that had happened, he wouldn't have come the second time. He wouldn't be coming the second time. He came to make the statement, to fulfill the prophecy that God has an amazing, almighty program for this earth, for people on this earth. And for the heavenly realms as too, it goes beyond us into heavens. Places where we can't reach, but God knows all about. God is doing something amazing in this earth. He's done, doing something amazing at Christmas times, you know, when we think about the phenomenal thing it's become. And we've got a very special chapter this morning by a very special prophet with a very special message for a very special people created in the image of God. But yet we're all in a mess. We think we've got it together and really the Bible tells us we ain't got it together at all. But there's hope in Jesus who helps us and can help us get it all together. So we're going to look at (coughs) this chapter in Isaiah which is chapter 42. We're going to read the first nine verses. <coughs> Isaiah 42, verse 
one. Ho, ho, ho. Oh, I'm not reading it right, am I? That's the words of Santa, isn't it? But ho is a biblical word in the authorised version, and it means come. And before we even start this chapter, there's an amazing invitation, isn't there? To come. We've come here this morning, but we want to come a little further. And we're going to something like that invitation that God gives us um, in this chapter. So let's read it properly this time, shall we? Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will not grow faint or be discouraged. Verse 2 says he will not cry out. In verse 4, he says, he will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth. That great program which God's about. And in the coastlands, wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. I tell you of them. That's an important phrase. Because in the previous chapter, we have a people who are trying to get an answer from bits of wood and stone and metal, and they don't speak. God speaks, and here he said, the things I now declare to you before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So the coming of Jesus, even as the servant of God, is something that God's telling the earth before it even happens. That's the, that's the, that's the weight of the prof- uh, largely of a, a prophetic message, is that God tells us things happen before they happen. Now, that's if you read chapter 41, you will find this. This was the great complaint. God's not speaking to us. He's not saying anything to us. He hasn't got a message for us. He's not giving us no direction. And we're here, twiddling our thumbs and feeling despondent 
and we just can't get out of where we got to because the nation of Israel it got itself into a mess. It had walked away. It had gone far from God, just to say that. Today, the world is looking at Israel. It's still Israel. God's still working and moving there. It's still, the, it's still derived from, the, from Abra- the promise of Abraham through Jacob down through the patriarchs to Jesus. And Matthew tells us, that's why he gives us the genealogy of Jesus. Jesus came at the right time. Now, before we go into further this, um, I want to say that this book, our Bible, is awesome. It's absolutely awesome from beginning to end. You leave your Bible on your shelf, it's like putting Jesus on the shelf. If you don't read from him, it's like, what's my relationship like with him? If you leave it on the shelf, you won't go find what's going to happen in the future. If you leave it in the sh- on the shelf, you won't know how to respond to God's amazing gift, Jesus. But we're here with this amazing, awesome book, and we're looking at it. And we're looking at it through the Isaiah, this great prophet. When we come to Isaiah, we have to consider, I'm going to take a little bit of time about this, and I'm going to be a little bit forensic in looking at, chapter, at verse 1 and 2 of this. not going to say much else apart from that, apart from a couple of things that God's put on my heart to share as an act of ministry this morning. There are layers of context in the, in the prophetic words that are given. Sometimes it's not always one context, even if there's one message. And you'll find out through Isaiah that there are layers of context we have to drill down into, to work through, to understand where he's coming from. And um, so how do we look at this this morning? Isaiah is the prophet of prophets. He is outstanding in content and presentation. He also stands out among the other prophets, even if it's because of chapter 53 in Isaiah. That chapter where he throws his voice forward. You know, do birds throw their voice? Do you know? Anybody know? Do birds throw their voice? I reckon I'm in the garden and go for a walk. And um, I hear a sound, it comes from there, but the bird's there. So I'm beginning to think, I think birds throw their voice. They confuse you, and you, you go over there, and the voice comes from another place, and yet the bird's still there. He's still singing his song. Anyway, Isaiah throws his voice forward some 700 years, speaking like a daily news reporter who was present during the trial and crucifixion of Jesus, closer than any of the disciples. His mother, soldiers, or even the onlookers. What he says in Isaiah 53 is as if he was closer than anybody else to Jesus. And how can he say that before he's ever come? Amazing man. Amazing work of the Holy Spirit speaking through Isaiah. So amazing. When prophets speak, the context they speak into or from is often varied. Isaiah, for example, sees that he is not a lone figure speaking from a cave with personal ideologies. His words and protest are not littered with, I think, which is what you'll hear more on television programs than anything, 
I think. Isaiah's not littered with what he thinks. Or is it a feeble plan to make all people become cave dwellers? His focus is on the glory of God. His focus is on what God's doing, but yet he doesn't fully understand it. And he comes into the plan and purpose of God to give the whole world a message, especially at this time of the year. So, for example, Isaiah travels from the cosmic domain, Isaiah 6, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, right from God, through the global level, taking in the unrivaled fact of creation that it is. Then with his contemporaries where kings and their kingdoms and nations with their unique differences clash and embrace. You'll notice as you read through Isaiah, he speaks about kings, their rise and their fall, their good things and their bad things, and how he speaks in these contexts at different times. We find in the context injustice falling on those with little or no power to change their situation or their own demise. Yet he speaks on the other hand, and Israel comes into this, he, he speaks in the context that they've no power to change their demise caused by whatever reason, particularly idol worship. Others, though, have caused their own demise and they receive subsequent justice, which God is about. Why? This is because of changes fueled by relativism. The fact it's all about me. I want what I want. We need what the culture's giving to us. We need what the television's telling us. That you've got to have this, and you've got to do this. It's all about that. It's all about relativism, birthed in the heart and in the culture with self-centered wisdom. And just to read Romans 1.22, this is what God says, Paul says, he said, these people, my people even, they claim to be wise, they've become fools and exchanged the glory exchanged that's the word they've exchanged the glory of god of the immortal god for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things but isaiah goes even further from the heart of man he goes to the womb the womb is the place of promise and plan where God meets silently with the miracle beginning that each of us started this life's journey. And the story and celebration of Christmas begins in the womb. It begins, what a place to go to. And yet this is God's plan and pearls. And tell us how wonderful the coming of Jesus is. How wonderful it is. It begins there. God starts his plan. At the practical outworking of his plan in the womb.
Behold, the virgin shall conceive. You've heard this many times, haven't you, at Christmas? Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son or possibly a daughter. No, and will bear a son and his name will be called Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. You see, the plan and the purpose of God began right in the womb. Where Mary said, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done unto me as he wants. What a wonderful attitude, ultimately, that Mary takes on. So what would be the immediate context of the fulfillment of this then the servant coming what would be the context of the servant coming yes we know about the great need that there was and the complaint of the earth and the complaint of the people that's making but the immediate context is God's timing because when Jesus came Matthew writes, or one of the other, I can't remember now, but it says, in the fullness of time. I'll read it to you, it's in Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, and the promise of certain things in the future would turn darkness to light. Demise to redemption, futility to hope, and it's like the stage curtain is thrown aside of the scenery. The lighting spills into the auditorium, and there's a voluminous, ooh, in biblical terms, a revelation. God reveals what he's going to do. Behold, my servant. They've been waiting for that word. Behold, I said I'm going to be a little bit forensic because I want to look at this word. I want to look at the word servant. I want to look at the word uphold just to give us maybe some interesting ideas and thoughts about it. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah are mainly contextually historical. It was a few weeks ago, Bob was saying to his, when we went about preachers and things and preaching, how it's important to um, put it in context of what was happening then, and then we can draw from that lessons, you know, from what we need here in our culture, which may be different than the culture that it was given then, and that's important. I think it's something that's overplayed by many theologians, but there we are. Um, so the immediate context of Jesus coming was at the right time. And now the first 39 chapters of Isaiah are mainly contextually historical. The following chapters are contextually bound up in the person and mission of Jesus coming and the mission of the Messiah. So there's almost a division there in the book of Isaiah. And um, this mission is preceded, if you like, in the first 11 verses of chapter 40. You can read it for yourself when you get to it. But here, in chapter 40, it begins with comfort, comfort my people, 
says your God. So that's bringing into us a context in which this future thing in a different context is going to happen. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. What does that mean, actually? Because there's a new section starting in the book of Isaiah, and it's, and it's abrupt change from what has happened historically, what God is now going to do from now on. What he's going to do from now on. Comfort, comfort my people. So what's, happened, what's the idea of this? The idea is, look, the problem has been identified. And a solution has been found. We can all breathe a sigh of relief. The problem's identified. The solution has been found. We can all breathe a sigh of relief. Now, as we travel towards celebrating Jesus' birth, that arrival was the single answer to a cosmic and impossible situation. We are in a situation that we can't change, only God can change. And it's the coming of Jesus, recognised now in the birth of Jesus, which is the answer. So as we travel towards celebrating Jesus' birth, that arrival was the single answer to a cosmic and impossible situation, otherwise incurable. The Lord's servant, which we're reading about, the Lord's servant is a single answer to that problem. The world's plight. What is the world's plight? Let's try and assess that for a moment. I could just generally say the world's a mess. And if you're saying, hey ho, Christmas is coming, I'm all right with the world and the world's all right with me, let's have Christmas, let's have a good party, let's get it over with, and all's fine with the world. It isn't. And I'll tell you why. It's fallen and in itself offers no hope to fallenness of situations individuals, people groups like tribal warfare and division, historical offences within families, even taking in abuse and bad treatment of children, personal relationships like within marriages, governments, leadership failures, corruption, and ultimately the cessation of life where originally God intended us to enjoy eternal life. Death, we call it. That's the plight of the world. And a quick assessment. At the end of chapter 41, reflection is made on this brokenness and why. That people have moved away from God. They've turned to idols that couldn't, of course, speak left the people and nations without, without, without a sure word. And Isaiah 42 begins with the surest of words for the world. Certainty, confidence, the absence of a sure words, the idols don't speak, they don't say anything, they don't give any guidance for the future, 
and the future was the point that they raised. He's not telling us what happens in the future. So God blurted out all of a sudden, well, let me tell you about Cyrus. He's, he's not a particularly good king, yet he's going to help you out. Now, see if other one, anybody else can tell you that. See if anybody else can tell you that. I'm the one who knows the future and holds the future in his hands. Oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah. He holds it in his hand. Reflection is made then on this brokenness and the absence of a sure word they were silent. God appeared silent. Prophetic words were ignored. And God has blurted it out. You've got an unexpected helper coming. So as we move on towards Christmas and we look at the cradle, we look at the baby in the manger and God's saying, for many people, I have an unexpected helper for you. That's Jesus. People receiving Jesus for the first time as their personal saviour, he can become your unexpected helper. A very present help in time of need is quoted from another verse in the Bible. A very present help. When we receive the Holy Spirit, that is the very present help in time of need. So this forensic look then at these first few things. The character of servant is the attention, the character of servant, listen carefully, the character of servant is the attention and the servant's character is the attraction. So when, Jesus, when, when God through the prophet is saying, behold, he's saying, come, I want to tell you something. And then he said, I want you to look at this. It's the word behold. That's just one little explanation. Behold. It's an amazing word. And I like looking at words. So, the character of servant is the attention. And the servant's character is the attraction. So, we're looking at someone who's wanting to serve us. And we're looking at someone who's gentle in doing that the attraction it's a bit like Moses out in the backside of the desert if you know the story of Moses he was in the backside of the desert and then he noticed I think he was licking his wounds a bit but he was out in the backside of the desert and the bush was burning that wasn't an unusual sight but then he got closer and he saw it wasn't being consumed. Amazing. So God's got his attention. Now he's attracted. And now he's taken his shoes off. Because the God said to him, the place where you're standing is holy ground. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the prophecies about him, which tell of his goodness, his greatness, his saving work, is holy ground. Christmas can make it a bit not like holy ground sometimes. And so 
let's take this opportunity of causing Christmas to be worship for him, not celebration. Lovely that all that goes on, families and stuff like that. It's so amazing. So that's the, it starts, behold my servant. So God's inviting us to look and come back for a second look. There are many people today, they'll, they'll listen to your story of Jesus, they'll maybe look at it on television, they, that's the first look, but don't come back anymore. But you see, the word beholding, he's saying, come look and receive. Come take hold of what I want to do for you. So God speaks of his servant, and we get a description of him characterized by gentleness. His dealings with nations will be gentle because that is his inherent nature within grace. The first four verses do that, but in the second hand, when God speaks of his servant, in the second half he's speaking to, he's speaking to his servant. So that's an amazing thing that's happening there. His task is laid out for all the world to see in verses 5 to 9. And is prophetically an accomplished task where justice for all is the target. In the manger, when we come up to Christmas, it's as if the baby is laid out for all the world to see. And I'm going to say it in these terms. This is the arm of the Lord which Isaiah spoke about. The arm of the Lord, his justice for all is about to be realized by the coming of Jesus and something great is going to happen through him. The Christmas story has and is largely recognized and displayed globally in some form or other. So from small beginnings, it has become phenomenal. I just mentioned this earlier, but just take it. Retail sales shoot up at Christmas. Holidays, bank holidays, carols, nativity inactions, even rebuttals from people. I don't want anything to do with that sort of thing. I'm not interested in that. The Queen's speech when it happened and the King's speech now, affecting our world. Affecting our world. And the famous chapter in Isaiah 53 says, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Well, this morning, the arm of the Lord reaching out to each and every one of us is revealed here for each one of us to take hold of. So just we looked at the word, uh, we're looking at the word behold, it takes in many other uses. You met Moses in the bush. When in John's gospel, um, there's a little, cap which, a little passage which looks back to the time of Moses when they'd sinned, when the people had sinned against God and they, they, they forged a brazen calf. Now the funny thing is, because sores broke out of them, because they'd gone against the will of God, sores had broken out on the people, and um, they were suffering. And God didn't give them some medicine for the sores. He gave them something to do. That was to look and live. So this word, behold, another, from another stance is look and live. Behold, look at my servant and you will find life. 
You know, the thief did this, actually, when he was on the cross alongside Jesus. He was there, pinned to the cross. He wasn't able to move. He wasn't even to, able, able to move any form of restitution to anybody. He was pinned to the cross, too. Yet, he realized that Jesus was someone who'd never sinned. He was the perfect man. This man has never, he said, this man has never sinned. This, this man's a good man. This, this man's right. And that's what he did. And what Jesus said to him, he said, today, you will be in paradise with me. All he was able to do, in a sense, was to look and live. And God is drawing us in with this word, behold, in drawing us, he gives us the invitation to look and then, then take that second step to experience life, eternal life in Jesus. Amazing concept there. And it's also reiterated in Hebrews, if you've heard this verse, some will understand, some may not understand, you have not come to the mount, which is burning, you've come to the city of the living God. You come to the city of the living God. So when we find out the wonder of this servant and we come near to him, we're coming to an amazing spiritual place and physical place too. I just want to quickly now mention as we come towards the end for drop on a couple of things which may help us today. The servant. We looked at um, a DVD in the week, and our group, we looked at a DVD in the week um, by Tim Keller. Uh, I think it's called The Prodigal God. And he was explaining the difference between a servant and a hired hand. If you know anything about that story in Luke 15, um, the son wanted to come back as a hired hand he, didn't see, he, did, he couldn't take in the concept of returning as a son because society and his father could have shut him out and not received him back. He was asked to come back as a hired hand. But then also in the house, later on, um, the servants went to the elder son. He said, he said, there's music and dancing in the house. Forget the story now. The servants and the hired hand. And Tim Keller said this, there's a difference between the hired hand and the servant. The servant is one who lives on the estate. But the hired hand is one who's collected from the marketplace and is paid a wage for coming into the estate and then they go back to be employed by someone else. Now, all we haven't looked in this passage, the very fact that Jesus has come as a servant, the New Testament says or repeats about Jesus, I am among you as one who serves. Another verse says, I've not come to be served, but to serve. And the very character and the very work of Jesus as a servant calls us, each one, to be servants too. 
you remember the story in John 13 where the disciples and Jesus had gathered and uh, yeah, we're all disciples of Jesus. <laughs> we don't need to do this job. But it's a job that needed to be done because the towel was there. The towel was ready for washing the feet. And Jesus got up and put a towel around him and washed the disciples' feet. He said, what you see me do, do to others. So that's a clear indication that we are supposed to follow his example and do what he said. But I just want to talk in the context of the church for a moment. So sometimes we have this mentality, we're not, sometimes we're not living on the estate, we're sort of outside and we just come in when we're needed. Yeah? And I'll start, start with the first word I believe God wants me to say. God's calling, I'm going to say young men, but and women too, to live on the estate of the church, not be those who have a casual glance and participation in the church of just what we can do. You know, many, some churches in America, they, they hire, they, 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 they advertise for worship leaders and then pay them a wage to come in to be just an employee of the church. Ah, that's a bit like the hired worker, isn't it? God's looking for servant-hearted men and women within the church who are willing to live on the estate, to be under their master and not hired in. There's two mentalities going on here as we look at where we stand in the church. We need to be people who live on the estate Get the, get, you get the meaning? We're there for the duration. We're there with heart. And our master looks after us. Okay, the second word, I believe God is calling someone to get set in and know what the church is all about. And what I mean by that is you have an intentional program for your life to study more about the church so that you might be someone who's with this Beacon Church or another church that protects it and keeps it for future days. Someone who holds on to the doctrine and what to become biblically involved, not just casually involved, to live on the estate. I know someone in this congregation I know who's got a bit of an interest or a bit of a desire even for eldership, because the Bible talks about if anyone desires to be, to be an elder or an eldership, he must be this and this and this and this and this, and God, the, the parameters are laid out for that. But I think God's placing a desire in someone's heart to dwell on the estate of the church and live for it, in Jesus' name. Now, secondly, out of our passage this morning, I believe that for some of us, maybe one or two, the spirit of despondency is beginning to set in your life because of circumstances. 
and it's something that we need to come against in Jesus' name. Let me tell you how that happened quickly. In chapter 41, in verse 27, uh, other verses too, we find a prevailing mood of negativity. A prevailing mood of negativity. The people kept repeating things. God's not saying anything. I don't understand what's going to say. I'm here. He's not listening to me. That's that sort of negativity. Yeah? That negativity will degenerate your soul with thoughts and talk which keeps coming out of you. It's also in that passage in chapter 41, their preoccupation with idols, which was the predominant cause of their demise. And sometimes the preoccupation with your own personal circumstances can be at the same level. Your preoccupation with that. Well, now preoccupation on the worship and the praise and the glory of God. My needs, my situation, my circumstances. The people were bewildered. How can God do this to me? My way is hidden from the Lord, closing down your mind on the goodness of God. My prayers are never answered. He's not hearing me. The power of God's justice, I tell you, the power of God's justice is spoken over you. He wants to call you into the good place because God has prepared the good place. The answer to that is praise, gratitude and worship from the heart will change that. Consistent reading of the world will keep you on track. Jesus, being servant, expects us to receive. I'm one, I'm among you as one who serves. He's reaching out to you in tenderness, loving kindness. And like Jesus said in the New Testament, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want God to do for you today? He's servant for the needs, the real needs of us, of people. Let us draw near with faith and understanding and let Christmas endorse that, his goodness, as we come to it again in Jesus' name. And later on, we might pray. There might be a spot over there to be prayed with if despondency is beginning to set in or if you feel, God, you've got a call on your life to me more than you are now and to, and to run with that and to go for it. I'm sure Steve or someone else and other people can pray with you to do that in Jesus' name.